This morning we'll start by reading from Psalm 110. Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up my head. We should turn over to the New Testament in Hebrews. We'll start in chapter 11 at verse 32 and go through 12.4. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered nations, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight. Women received back their dead from resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats and destitute and afflicted, mistreated to whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may grow weary, not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding of your blood. May God bless the rich reading of his word. I used to be a jogger. Now I'm a washer. I got it into my head back in the 90s that I'd run a competitive race. It was a 5K in Winter Park on a cold, rainy Saturday morning. And I was uh, entered in what what they called the Faster Pastor Division. Never, never had done anything like that. And I, I, I fared 
actually pretty well. I, I finished second in the division. Now, you'd be more impressed if there were more than two of us who were in the <laughs> division. That's true. Only Joel Hunter, the pastor at Northland, finished with a... I never even saw his backside. I mean, that... I uh, promptly retired from competitive racing. However, there is one race far more significant from which I dare not retire. And I'm not, I'm not talking about the pastoral one. Pastors come and go for any number of reasons. Some are painful. I know what those are like. Some are sweet. I'm thankful that I know what that's like. I'm talking about the one that I started to run on December 14, 1972. It's the kind of race pictured in the text I chose and did not have to deliberate at all about where I would land on my farewell message, Hebrews 12. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The writer uses a word picture, a metaphor, something the audience of his day would have been well familiar with, uh, an Olympic marathon, and you and I, every four years, know what that looks like as well. I'm finishing a segment of the race with this message and my resignation on Wednesday. 15-year stewardship. So grateful. But I am not finished running the greater race, and neither are you, if you are in Christ by grace through faith. So I, I, I am the priest to myself today. I want to make the finish line. And I'm taking aim at you, fella. Baton pass happening. You are God's man for the next length. There is God's man who ran before me and pass the baton to me. Now it goes to you. I want you to run with endurance and finish your race here, however long, and I pray God gives you years of fruitful ministry. I'm taking aim at you, fella, down in South Florida. Run your race the one set before you in your church plant, finish. See the line. 
and I, but I could pick out other names. But to all of us, I want to say, see the finish line. Make your goal in hearing this unique message today that one day you'll be able to say with the Apostle Paul these words in 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. See it. Taste it. Own it. Pray for it. Labor towards it. The concern with this text, actually much the culmination of the book of Hebrews, is an ever-present risk. Spiritual drift. I take that word drift from early on in the book. Hebrews 2.1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Or here, Hebrews 3.12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Be on the alert. Take care. Watch out for this. This largely Jewish, Christian faith-believing church to which the Hebrew writer wrote suffered intense persecution. How intense? Hebrews 10.34 says, even to the plundering of their property. Imagine you and I were to go home for the little bit of time where you have to own it and find it raised to the ground because someone who hates Jesus plundered it. That's what these people were suffering for their faith. So instead of running the race, because they found the way too hard, by the way, the word race is the Greek word agon, from where we get the word agony. For finding it too difficult, they began to drift. They fell away. They dropped out of the race. So the writer sends this letter to help stem that tide. And he argues systematically in the first 10 chapters for the vast superiority of Jesus of whom we have sung. Superior to the angels. Superior to Moses. Superior to every priest in Israel's history who walked into the temple to offer yet 
another sacrifice for the sins of the people. Jesus, vastly superior as the great high priest of the new covenant who entered into the Holy of Holies and offered a once-for-all sacrifice for sin and has sat down, having finished his work. What are you thinking about defaulting to the old, the past, when a new way has been opened to you? Chapter 11 is special, unique, and it sets the table for chapter 12. For the writer chronicles the stories of many who successfully finished their race even though they did not receive the promises. And then comes the grand therefore that opens chapter 12, the hinge of the whole book. Everything up to that point in Hebrews is preparatory. It is all about Hebrews 12, 1 and following. Therefore, chapters 1 through 11, therefore, run. Run your race. Don't drift. Don't coast. Don't meander. I say to you, where are you in the race? Take thought today. How's your running going? Are you coasting, meandering? Worse than that, are you on the precipice of dropping out? No, no, a thousand times no. Chapters 1 to 10 and 11, run your race. The way is hard, but you must Embrace your context as a Christian. You are a contestant in a hard race, a track of suffering. You are not a consumer on a pleasure cruise. Here's my main idea. and an outline for how to accomplish what I am proposing from the text. The risk of abandoning the faith because of suffering, hardship, loss. That risk requires running with endurance the race of faith set before us. How? Three things. One, recall the witnesses of faith surrounding the race. Two, remove, strip off the weights of life hindering the race. And three, (laughs) relish. Relish the wonder of Jesus empowering the race. 
First, recall the witnesses of faith surrounding the race. Look at verse 1, how he begins. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, even I can interpret this accurately. This this is a no-brainer. He's talking about the saints of old in chapter 11 that he's just recounted. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob. We know all of these names from our three-year journey through Genesis, which we just finished last week. But more. Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and more than time would fail to tell. All commended for their faith, though they did not receive the promise. Hebrews 11.39. Oh, oh, they received some promises, as we saw in Genesis, but they all died before the fullness of time and the Messiah came. They died in hope. They never saw it. They tasted it. But they never experienced it. Why? God had a better plan. Us. It needed to include you and me, the saints of the old covenant time and of the new covenant time. See, in the old, they looked forward and believed the promise of Messiah, the saving seed of Genesis 3.15, based upon the shadows of the old. Now, from our vantage point, we look back in time and space reality. Christ dead, buried, raised, and ascended on high. But in one respect, we still all wait in hope for the final consummation, the new heaven and new earth. Things are still not the way they're supposed to be. But one day they all shall be made new, all creation grown to that end. In the meantime, what do you do? Keep running. Keep running. Run the race to the finish. Now witnesses do two things, right? They see with their eyes what happens, and then they speak with their mouths about it. My contention is that this text is about the latter, what they say to us. Though it's tempting in imagining the picture of a stadium filled with people that they're all looking down and watching what's going on. There's nothing in the Bible that I can find that suggests that's the case. The thought that Nancy, who has run a race and is now with that great cloud of witnesses, is somehow all that interested what's going on down here? When she's got all that's going on up there and the rest of them, I, I, don't, 
I don't think so. And one of the reasons why I land there is Hebrews 13, excuse me, 11.4, about Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, to which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. You read about Abel? And you see an Abel story in Genesis chapter 4, he talks to you. He testifies to you. He cheers you on by what he has to say. I made it. You can make it too. Or you read about David. King David, the man after God's own heart. He's in that stadium. Cheering you on. I committed adultery. I conspired to do murder. But I repented. And sackcloth and ashes was weeping. There were consequences, yes. But I made it to the finish line. And that didn't wipe me out. That failure did not define me. Because grace is so amazing. They they speak to you and me. They cheer us on. They are histories, tier by tier, generation by generation, stadium witnesses. So great. Don't ever forget their witness, their testimony. Recall them often for the sake of finishing your own race. John Piper explains it this way. This is the way all the witnesses of Hebrews 11 are helping us. They have gathered along the sidelines of our race, and they, I love this imagery, they hold out their wounds and joys and give us the best high fives we ever get. Go for it. You can do it. By faith, you can finish. By faith, by the assurance of better things hoped for, you can do it. I did it, and I know it can be done. Run, run. You're at risk. Don't panic, but be aware. Suffering, hard race, loss, Some of you are even feeling it not in any way, shape, or form as great as some of what's in this book, but there's a loss of a pastor as as filled with fault, and now you're having to see what will the new normal be like. Part of the race set before you. You must run with endurance. The race set. Recall the witnesses. Second, remove the weights of life hindering the race. The rest of verse 1. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. There are, there are two concerns. Weights and sin. 
Weights are things that slow you down in the race. They impede your running. You see, in the day of the first century, running in a race like the marathon, the competitors engage in it as they do today, if they want to win and finish, a strenuous training program where they put aside, they remove any extraneous body fat. But what you may not know, and I have a hard time picturing this, but competitively in the games in the first century, they stripped naked and ran without any clothes at all. Now, true. That's how, that's how serious the run was in terms of putting off the weight. Weights again impede and slows you down. Paul talked about having to run this way in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I think the King James says Buffett. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So, here's the deal. When you're faced with a choice about running your race, don't just ask the minimalist question. Don't just ask the question, is it wrong? Is it sinful that I do this or that? Oh, it's not wrong. I can do it. No, no. Ask another, that is an important question. Ask another question. The maximalist one. Is it helpful? Is it going to aid my race before me? Or is it going to slow me down? All right, so can I get personal? What are you going to do? Fire me? I'm done today. <laughs> Netflix. Now, I've had Netflix in the past. I'm talking about maybe so much streaming, not helping your race. Videos, computer games, web surfing, social media, smartphones, certain kinds of novels, Talk radio, ESPN, sorry guys, maybe. Consumption habits, spending habits, time wasters, people you hang with. There are so many potential weights to your race. Here's one harder 
to grapple with. There are attitudinal weights that can slow you down. Talking with somebody recently I share a lot about. Doesn't go here, okay? So, um, asked, how's your, how's your race? How's your spiritual life going? He said, feeling really cynical. So vulnerable with me. You give away the cynicism, like front news story in the Sentinel this week about a church we love and care about, a pastor I know, and hard report, or you learn about a mega church pastor in Chicago, 10 women coming forward. Been to that place, I've sat under that. Nobody's immune to cynicism. There is now a hashtag church two movement. To which I say, that race down there is not my race. That race up there, though he who thinks he stands, takes heed lest he fall, I'm not immune. Somehow I got here today without majorly wrecking the train, though I sure shook it up a few times. Nobody else's race is yours. You personally have your own race set before you. Run that. Don't let the enemy bind you up on your run with cynicism or entitlement or apathy. Ditch those things, or the ones that are legit, moderate them. There are weights and there are sins. Look again at the text, lay aside every weight, and sins which flame so closely. Now that one's a lot harder to interpret. Obviously, the ESV has its choice. The New American Standard and the NIV have so easily entangles. New King James goes with so easily ensnares or traps. Here's the point with this. Weight will slow you down in the race. Sin may take you out of the race. Weight will slow you down. Sin can cause you to fall out altogether. So the writer admonishes in Hebrews 13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so I have had my armor bearers. I have had my armor bearers. Paul uses even stronger imagery. Put to death, therefore, 
Colossians 3, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene thought from your mouth. Jesus got even more graphic addressing lust. If your right eye, Matthew 5, 29 and 30, causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, Jesus is using extreme hyperbolic metaphor and imagery to make sure we get his point. Deal decisively with sin. Take no prisoners. Lay aside, put to death, tear it out, cut it off. It won't just slow you down. It can take you out. Come up with a plan, enlist help, go to war. I fought decades-long battle with lust. And many of you know the story. I'm candid about it. And so much was at stake with that, I had to go to war. Counselors. I lost count of how many I saw. Nancy, bless her soul, never abandoned the race with me, though she was tempted, and rightly so, because I never stopped getting help. Counselors, support group. Six and a half years I was in the support group at Vista Community Church. Some of my dear friends from there are here today. Accountability partners, I remember messing up for the option time. <laughs> and going to Nancy and say, I blew it again. Please forgive me. I, I don't know what else. Oh, this is so vivid. I don't, I don't know what else to do. I've done everything I can do. She said, no, you haven't. <laughs> okay. You haven't done the program. Now, that's insider Heffelfinger previous marriage talk about functional neurological reorganization that Nancy was a certified counselor and practitioner in. And there are, there are elements in the research about how neurological repatterning through movements and the light can affect addictive aspects of the brain. And she was right. I hadn't done that for two years. Now, whatever you may think about that, I don't really care. I don't really care if it was just a, uh, what, what do they call those things that you take in medicine? Placebo. Who cares? For two years, I crawled on my hands and my knees around the family room. And I did patterns that, that mimic what children do in the womb that are about helping to repair synapses in the brain. Because I wanted to be free. 
hard to get free. Do what it takes to run the race. Go to war. Remove the impediments, the weights, and the sins. Don't coddle sin. It crouches at the door, and it's desirous for you. Genesis 4, 7. Now that, that, that litany I just gave you about my battle with lust, I won the whole story. And you go out of here really depressed if you just decide, I'll pull myself up with a bootstrap and I'm going to get on top of lust or whatever else. I'm going I'm I'm to deal with my anger. I know what I need to do. That's where point three comes in and where we must, we must finish today. There's a risk, the threat of drift, running a race. We call the witnesses, remove the weights and sins. Third, relish the wonder of Jesus empowering the race. Verse 2. Looking to Jesus. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Here's the main thing you need in the race. Endurance. In fact, the prepositional phrase with endurance comes before the verb in the text for emphasis. Premium virtue in the Christian race is not speed. It's staying power. The word means to bear up under suffering, trial, and difficulty. Hebrews 10, 36, you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The Bible Champions, this virtue. Luke 8, 15, as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So we're coming home now. Verse 2 the writer points us to the ultimate example, the inspiration of faith, stamped with patient endurance, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Looking to Jesus, Looking to him, Richard Phillips calls this the all-purpose Christian advice. Looking to Jesus, by, by, by all means, hear the testimony of the Old Testament saints and their encouragement 
that was written for you to that end, but their inspiration will only get you so far. Your declaring war on your sin will only get you so far. Your putting off the weights and impediments will only get you so far. We need more than encouragement. We need empowerment. So the writer, he, he reaches for the pinnacle example of race running with endurance, Jesus Christ. But he was so much more than our example. Do you see the words he uses to describe him? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter. The one who originates, starts, authors, pioneers, captains of salvation. Mine, December 14th, 1972, 10.30 a.m., Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And perfects, sustains, and completes it. And whatever day that will be for me. Look to Jesus, present tense. Keep on looking. And the force is to fix your gaze, locking like a laser on him. If you've ever been looking at me in the last 15 years, what in the world have you been doing? Your eyes should be one place, the chief shepherd. There will never be a hashtag Jesus 2 movement. Do not, covenant members, keep your eyes on him. He's an under-shepherd. He's a servant. Follow his lead. Keep your eyes. Look on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. How? Two ways. Cross, crown. Look to Jesus. The cross, back, crown, a head up, first time the writer of Hebrews uses the word cross. Nothing matched the cross for suffering and shame. Think about it lashing, mocking, spitting, beating, nails, spear, the wrath of God upon the Son of God for the sins of the world. Nothing matched the shame. And for Jesus, it was joy. Did you see it? What a juxtaposition. What paradox. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. What, what, what joy implicitly an atoning sacrifice for the sins of everyone the Father had given to him before the foundation of the world. If you sit here today, your hope is built on Jesus' blood and righteousness and nothing less. Know that the Son of God endured the shame of the cross and it was joy for you and what he purchased. But explicitly, the text makes clear that it was joy. Come on, shame. Despise the shame. Come on, I, I can take you. I'm, I'm, I embrace you for my joy. 
Give me everything you've got. Why? For the joy set before him. Why do you need to consider him in your race if you want to make the finish line? Because he, by his example, shows you and by his life and power in you enables you to look to the same finish line. Who for the joy set before him, his race, what was that joy? Sat down. is seated at the right hand, the place of ultimate honor in all the universe. As it sustains him, the reward, so that it sustains you. Look to Jesus. In mentioning the exaltation of Christ at the right hand, the author mentions for the fourth time Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Like the patriarchs, Jesus desired a better country. Hebrews 11, 16, like Moses, she endured as seeing him who is invisible. Fix your gaze on the cross and the crown. Show them the cross and the crown, Jim. Sunday in, Sunday out. John Owen. We must hear from this Puritan giant as we finish. A constant view of the glory of Christ will revive our souls and cause our spiritual lives to flourish and thrive. This is what transforms us daily into the likeness of Christ. So let us live in constant contemplation of the glory of Christ and power will then flow from him to us healing all our afflictions, renewing a right spirit in our souls in Christ who will fill us with delight and satisfaction. The reason why the spiritual life in our souls decays and withers is because we fill our minds full of other things. And these things weaken the power of grace. But when the mind is filled with thoughts of Christ and his glory, these things will be expelled. When we behold the glory of Christ by faith, every grace in us will be stirred up. The risk is real. The race is hard. Run with endurance. The one set before you. Recall the witnesses, remove the weights and sins, relish the wonder. What's your race? Your race before you, you may know, and it may be particularly hard right now, do not be surprised. You have need of endurance. You may not know what's ahead like this dear woman, and I do not. My experience has been that it's not that important that you know the specifics. What matters is that you run and run and run and run. So, Read your Old Testament. 
don't neglect the Old Testament. Study of the Saints of Hebrews 11. When Nancy and I moved to Idaho under very difficult circumstances in 1998, every morning I got up and I walked the streets of Moscow, Idaho, no matter how cold it was, and I memorized Hebrews 11. To take courage, I had no idea how Nancy and I were going to pull up, but we felt like right or wrong in anybody's estimation God wanted us to do, and I live in Hebrews 11. I commend that to you. Read biographies. So happy to see people descending on my library remains out there and one dear woman taking a number of biographies out with her. I think there's still some good titles in that resource center. Help yourself after the service. What's slowing you down? Worse than that, maybe taking you out. Here's why I love the gospel. You come back, you own it, you repent, and you obey again. That's part of running the race with endurance, no matter how many times you failed. But make a plan, get help, go to war, and most importantly, keep your eyes on Jesus. What are they doing anywhere else? The moment your eyes open in the morning, before you step out into the Bedroom, look up, and just see Jesus. Thank you, I'm alive. I know you love me. Help me keep my eyes on you. And then when you come to the pillow, if you make it, because the Lord sustains you, at the end of the day, say, thank you, Lord. My eyes are up on you again. Watch him keep me in my sleep. Run your race. Run your race in Salerno. Run your race, stage shirts, shotgun, guy. You should run your race. Oh, he told you, run your race. Bridges, run your race. You don't have to be in full-time vocational ministry. Perish the thought. We need as many of you deployed all over the place. You have a race, run it. I'd be remiss if I didn't say that if you're not in Christ, you're running a different race. If you're maneuvering this life on your own and you have no regard for the one who suffered, bled, and died, you're running a very different hellbound race. You need to get into the race. And if you do, and I pray you do, then understand that you're aligning yourself with one that in Philippians 1, 6 says that he who began a good work, he who started this thing, will perfect it until the day of Christ. Oh, Father, thank you for the saints of old. Thank you for putting up with us in our slow running and our sinful ways. Thank you for a grace that still amazes and a Jesus seated on high. Cause our faith to look up to him. For Christ's sake, amen.